Well, this morning we are going to be in uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, verses 31 through 43. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, verses 31 through 43, the end of the chapter there. You can find our passage on page 878 in the Pew Bible. And I'll be reading, the, uh, reading from the English Standard Version, Hear the Word of the Lord. After taking the twelve, he said to them, uh, and taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. Uh, This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging, and hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Now since the reading of God's holy word. So in the Gospels the inability of the disciples to understand Jesus is striking. It is, uh, it is, in fact, one of the arguments for the truthfulness of the gospel accounts. Since the disciples uh, were either the writers of the gospels or the primary sources for the gospel writers, such as for Mark and for Luke, uh, the, if, if you have a bunch of, uh, you know, narcissistic, charlatan, egomaniacs wanting to found a false religion just to rip people off. Uh, they're, they're, when they, if you're going to make up a religion like that, you don't tend to paint yourself in a negative light. You don't tend to paint yourself as the one who didn't understand, who didn't get it, who, who often uh, foolishly didn't understand. And yet in the gospel accounts, even Jesus' closest followers misunderstand him. Thankfully, Jesus is not limited by or deterred uh, by the inability of his own disciples. Amen to that. Uh, And time and again, he shows us that the truth and power uh, um, uh, of our faith rest not in uh, how, how well we follow Jesus, but in the Savior himself. And in this passage, we find Jesus on his way to Jerusalem, he's in his, his final journey. I'm actually going to pull up the map here. Uh, so, that, so he's heading from the north there of Galilee and heading, and heading down in that kind of an S fashion. Uh, and so he's moving uh, towards Jerusalem. And I'll bring where we're at right now. We're at the southern end there uh, as he's passing by Jericho. And just before he passed by Jericho, uh, we have his statement predicting his death as they near Jerusalem. And then as he's passing through Jericho, uh, he heals uh, the blind beggar. And next week we'll see he also runs into a man uh, named Zacchaeus. And we'll, we'll talk about him next week. 
And so we are, but we are presented here in this passage with a contrast between Jesus' own disciples who cannot see the Savior in front of them and a blind man who keenly perceives the Savior before he can actually see him. And so we're going to look at each of those this morning. So first, in verses 31 to 34, we consider the disciples who cannot see the Savior standing in front of them in verses 31 to 34. And this is primarily due to the, the, the content of the confusion uh, comes over the intense suffering of the Savior, according to Jesus. Jesus tells his disciples that he will be, when they get to Jerusalem, uh, handed over to the Gentile or Roman authorities. He will be mocked. Now that word to, to mock, originally when it was used by Homer in early Greek writings and plays, was more kind of like the, the playful banter of children and, and dancing and frivolity. Uh, but over time, it became uh, much more serious and, and moved into a definition that was, uh, had to do with scorn, uh, heaping insults and derision upon another. Uh, in, um, it, it was a word that would accompany uh, other terrible and physical acts of brutality. Now, when he says treat shamefully, that's actually a single word uh, that, uh, that is related to where we get the word hubris. Uh, arrogance, pride. It's the treatment of another person that is fueled by pride and arrogance that, that uh, regards uh, the, the, another person with, uh, with absolute spite and, and, and doing and saying things that would bring shame upon that person. And hence, Jesus says, uh, amongst the things that will be done to him, uh, talking about the section on humiliation, he will be spat upon. Now, uh, you know, we can say that much has changed from the ancient world, uh, you know, over the course of 2,000 years in terms of how we uh, interact and how we have the technologies we have, the experience of life. Uh, but spitting upon another person uh, is pretty much universal no matter what time, uh, time you are in. doesn't matter what country uh, you are in. Uh, to spit upon another person displays the highest level of contempt for them. And so Jesus adds that beyond being humiliated, he will be scourged with a whip and then finally killed. But then he will rise again on the third day. Note here the, the, the emphasis that Jesus places on the humiliation aspect that he will have to endure. He lays that out in detail and is shockingly brief uh, about how he actually will die. He just says he'll be killed. But, he's, but he, length, he at length describes the humiliation he will endure. And we must reckon he, uh, here that with the fact that as Christians we worship a Savior who was treated awfully, terribly, and shamefully. And he was treated in that way for our sake, on account of our sin. And we are told that this was according to the sovereign plan of God to have a suffering Savior. Jesus knew as a matter of fact that he would suffer and die in absolute humiliation. He is the Son of Man, he says, and everything written about him will be accomplished. 
He uses a series of passive verbs here to communicate that it, the, the, um, the absolute unchanging reality of what is about to happen to him. That it is, is, it is as if it were set in stone. Because it is. Because it is God's plan of redemption. Well, what was said about him? Well, there's many things that we could go to. There's entire books that have been written about the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. But I'll pull up a few for us this morning. We have Isaiah 9, verse 7. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. For the son of David. Uh, Further, Isaiah um, 50 verses uh, uh, 5 and 6. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. Uh, I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and from uh, spitting. Also, I forgot to miss the the slide on there to put it up there, but Isaiah 49, verse 7. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, the one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and princes shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. And then we're familiar with Isaiah 53, the whole chapter, 12 verses that are dedicated to the suffering servant. But we may be less familiar with with is Isaiah 52, verses 13 through 15. Not verse 25 is a typo there. Verses 13 through 15. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. And we could go on to other texts like uh, like in the Psalms, Psalm 2, Psalm 22, Psalm 69, Psalm 110, and on and on we could go. Jesus clearly understood that a central part of the plan of redemption the central aspect of the ministry of the Messiah would be to suffer and die for his people. This was a, the fulfillment of what God had promised for hundreds and hundreds of years. Yet while this is clear as day to Jesus, it is clear as mud to his disciples. Because the disciples cannot imagine a suffering Savior. And one of my sons asked me a question recently that many ask when we talk about this as Christians, and because we talk about the fulfillment of all these prophecies about Christ's suffering. And the question is, is if there is so much said about the Messiah in the Old Testament and the Old Testament prophets, then why did the disciples not understand immediately? Why did the Pharisees who knew the Old Testament not believe? Well, there's a few few things here. There's several aspects to the answer that come, that that, uh, that come here, and it's not necessarily that it's the answer is super complex, but there is several 
several aspects to it. And so first, uh, we, Jewish teaching on the prophets in ancient times and even in modern Judaism today misapply the texts regarding the suffering servant or the suffering Messiah because they, what they'll say is they'll take those texts and they'll say, well, those texts about suffering are about Israel as the nation, as being personified as a person, or it's just about the prophet's own experience, Isaiah's own experience, Ezekiel's own experience. And uh, I will say, though, when I read those sources, I hear those sources, I don't actually get a, a, a strong degree of confidence that, uh, about those interpretations. The only thing they seem very confident about is that it cannot, absolutely must not be about Jesus, right? But that seems motivated from other reasons. Uh, secondly, um, uh, Messianic teaching in Jesus' own time focused obviously not on a suffering Savior, but on a warrior Messiah who would come and bring judgment upon Gentile oppressors and exalt Israel uh, to, uh, to her rightful place uh, as, as the light upon the mountain to which uh, the other nations would be drawn to. And they're saying, hey, you know what, you know, that's, that's what we're waiting for. And, uh, and you say, well, yeah, but how could they miss it? Well, uh, have you ever gone to a place and there's, you know, as a coworker, somebody you've seen in another context, but you see them out of a different context and you completely miss them until they like flag you down and say, hey, you know, and you go, and you can barely even remember their name, right? Because you weren't expecting to see them there. And so you can just blow on by, all right? Uh, and so these, and so these are, uh, so these are some of the reasons why uh, the disciples and the Pharisees and everybody just could not understand the idea of a suffering Savior. Uh, and third, particularly for the disciples, it's been going three years now that they've been with Jesus, and they've been seeing miracle after miracle after miracle with Jesus. And so, how could it be that 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 uh, that this man that they've been following, their rabbi, who they believe to be the Christ? Uh, would, would now have to endure the most humiliating and ignoble death available. It was simply unthinkable. And, uh, and fourth, it, it was, and this is, you know, we've given three very human reasons. But fourth, as Luke tells us, it was hidden from them. It was hidden from them by God's design so that Christ would fulfill his ministry. As one author noted, uh, uh, the answer to the question of why uh, they didn't believe immediately, uh, it's, it's simply what we have here is a wonderful mixture of divine mystery and human frailty. And, and so I don't think we have to get down on the disciples here. If we had been the disciples, we would not have understood either. We would have been like, that's crazy. I can't even, I don't even know what you're talking about. Um, but, uh, but we must be clear that without the suffering of Jesus, there is no gospel. There is no Messiah. There is no salvation. And despite the manifold attempts of people over, over the hist throughout the history of the church uh, to, to say otherwise, you cannot truly understand Jesus. You cannot truly know Jesus without his suffering, without his cross. A Jesus without suffering, a Jesus without the cross is not a Messiah, and he does not save. And so J.C. Ryle, the Anglican minister, uh, from the, uh, he, he said that the cornerstone of all truth concerning Christ is this, that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. It will not be the superiority of the disciples' understanding of their rabbi that saves them. Even those who were closest to Jesus didn't understand him. 
and neither do we apart from God's merciful work in our hearts and our souls. Now, as I was working, working on this sermon this week, I, uh, for, and on this particular section, for some reason, the, the hymn, uh, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, came to mind. And the second line, particularly, Behold the man upon a cross, my guilt upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. It is crucial to regularly remind ourselves of the central reality of Christ's ministry as Savior. Because as those who belong to him, as those who designate themselves by his very name, Christian, as those who do so, we must be careful not to blind ourselves to the reality of a suffering Savior, to distance ourselves from the the reality of a suffering Savior. Suffering is crucial, critical to our understanding of our relationship with Christ, our relationship with God, to understand our reconciliation with God, the gospel itself. That Jesus suffered for us means that we have forgiveness of sins, that we are declared righteous for his sake by faith alone. His suffering means that physical death is not the end for us because he has overcome it, because he endured it and rose again. We will live in eternity with him because Jesus suffered and because he rose from the dead. But suffering, the suffering of the Messiah, has implications for our life now as Christians as well. To follow a suffering Savior, according to the New Testament scriptures, according to the disciples who eventually did get the memo, means that we will suffer too. Peter says we will suffer so much, and we should expect to suffer so much, that we should not even be surprised when suffering and affliction come. Why? Because the disciple is not greater than his master. We are not greater than Jesus. And so this, this you know, tells us that we need to beware a false triumphalism that says because Jesus suffered and died uh, for sin that we will never have suffering as long as we have enough faith. Or if we do, it's because the devil tricked us or something like that. That's not what the scriptures say and that is not what the significance of the suffering of Christ speaks to the experience of the Christian life. We must also beware of creating a caricature of Jesus apart from his suffering so that he can fit into our own moral and or political preferences, whether it's a hippie progressive Jesus or a conservative Jesus that just wants to make America great again. Those caricatures of Jesus do not require suffering. They are saviors without a cross. Saviors that come and tell us that we're right and we're good and they're bad and they're evil. So one author, he summed up what the disciples are going through very well here. He said the day would come when the disciples would turn the world upside down with the message of a resurrected Messiah. But at this moment, they were confused about God's timing, about Scripture's meaning, and their own personal understandings. Yet in the meantime, while the disciples cannot see Jesus for who he is, uh, there is yet a blind man who knows the Savior before he can actually see him. And in this blind man, we first uh, see, observe a, a desperate hope that he displays. 
in, the, in verses 35 through 39. Jesus came near Jericho and a blind man hears the commotion. He hears the crowd ask uh, what, is, uh, what is going on. And, uh, and here is, you know, here's a man who lives by the generosity and pity of others who had no way to provide for himself. He apparently had heard of Jesus and the miracles that Christ had performed. He knew that if he could just get an audience with Jesus, that, that, that all would be well, that, that he would get the healing he needed. And so he cried out to Jesus to have mercy upon him. Not, not just Jesus, though. He calls him the son of David, uh, which was a designation for the Messiah. Apparently, uh, this man knew a lot about Jesus. And even more, he could see even more clearly than his disciples at times. And, and so imagine, though, that this man heard that Jesus was coming and so knew it was possible to, hear his, to, to regain his sight, to get his life, possibly. And instead he goes, I'm sure he'll come by later. I mean, Jericho's near Jerusalem. I'm sure he'll come back by. Uh, he'll probably, on his way back out of Jerusalem, he'll, he'll stop by Jericho. And we'd be like, are you nuts? Get over there to him, right? Take the opportunity. And yet we know that is how many treat Christ today. You just kind of go, I'll I'll get Jesus next time. I'll I'll, I'll take the opportunity the next time he comes around. I'm going to pass for now. You know, I know know of a pastor who for decades uh, his uh, shares the gospel essentially by beginning with a question, which essentially is, what odds would you give that Jesus is the Messiah, uh, uh, just like it says in the Bible? And he said, you'd be shocked how many people who don't go to church will say 50-50. But let's say it's one in 10, one in, one in 100, even, even one in 1,000. He asks, wouldn't it be worth investigating just in case it's true? And bear in mind that the odds of winning the Mega Millions jackpot are one in 302 and a half million. And while many, many financial experts will make it clear that playing the lottery is a bad bet, right? Uh, it's uh, yet people still play it. Why? Just in case, right? It's going to cover my lucky bases. The blind man here presses anyone who hears his story to take advantage of the opportunity of of coming before Christ, of considering Christ, of meeting Jesus now. To consider, to weigh the, 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 the claims of the gospel. To even be willing to believe that Jesus is indeed the Lord. But many will pass up the opportunity because they aren't desperate like the blind man. They have resources. They have their dignity. They have entertainment. They have certain interests that would uh, be threatened by becoming a Christian. Isn't it a a mercy when God strips us of our dignity? And so they let Jesus pass on by. Let's not do that today. Rather, like the blind man, let us instead cry out, even if those tell us to be quiet, to cry out to Jesus to have mercy upon us. Because we know, because of this story, that uh, that there is abundant compassion with the Savior. In verses 40 to 41. 
Jesus stops everyone and commands for the man to be brought to him. And, and when he does, so he asks the man what he wants him to do. And the man says he wants to recover his sight. That's what he wants. And, and, it just, and it's brought up a question to me and, and uh, for me and a, and a very basic question. But have you ever imagined Jesus asking that question to you? What is it that you want me to do for you? What would you have to do with Jesus? I'm not suggesting that Jesus is some kind of wish granter. Well, I, I want this. I want that. Give me, you know, becomes some kind of vending machine or genie. But at the most basic level, what are you crying out to the son of David for? What do you need? What is it that you cannot do for yourself? What is it that you require the mercy of the son of God for? One thing we see time and again in the Gospels is that Jesus has compassion, not for the strong, because the strong don't think they need it. He has it for the suffering, for the weak, and for the needy. He cares for the sick, the injured, and the dying. He cares for the powerless, the orphan, and the widow. What do you need Jesus for? It's like the blind man. At the very least, we need Jesus to do what we cannot do for ourselves. Save us from our sin. But we, uh, but we also need, along with that, we need comfort and strength in affliction and sorrow. We need help to eyes to see uh, our blind spots and the sins that we've made accommodation for. We need all kinds of help. What are you crying out? To Jesus for and remember that if you do he has compassion for the needy and finally we see in the healing of the blind man a faith rewarded in verses 42 and 43 the clause there in the in the ESV in the English uh, it says receive your sight is one word in the Greek meaning that with a single word that Jesus says the man regains his sight he essentially says See, and he does. And Jesus says that it was the man's faith that made him well. Now we have said again and again, according to the scriptures, that it is not the quality or the quantity of our faith that makes it powerful, but the object of our faith that is, the, is what truly matters. This man had resolute faith. That was demonstrated and that he would not be stopped from crying out to Jesus. And if there was ever a ready application to prayer, this is it. Pray and pray to Jesus. Cry out to the son of David. Trust in him. Lean upon him. What is more, uh, we see that, that this man's faith wasn't skin deep or only for his physical recovery, as, as, as he not only immediately saw Jesus, but then follows Jesus and gives praise to God while he does. We have in the blind man the path of the Christian, the Christian convert who cries out to Jesus, who has the eyes of his soul opened, his ears opened, to hear and believe the good news of the gospel. And then we follow him. We live for him giving glory to God wherever he leads us. 
another quote from J.C. Ryle. He said, grateful love is the true spring of real obedience to Christ. And we see this in the blind man. Why does he follow Jesus? Why does he love Jesus? Because he healed him. He gave him eyes to see. But not only did he open his physical eyes, he opened the eyes of his heart to see the Lord. The text is not saying here everything there is to say about salvation. No single text can. But we are clear on at least two things. First, that Christ's suffering is inseparably tied to the gospel of grace. We cannot be saved apart from the suffering of the Savior. And secondly, the picture of the beggar healed is the picture of the sinner becoming a Christian. Because of his desperate condition, the blind man knew better than Christ's own disciples who Jesus was and how badly he needed him. You know, we define blind faith as irrationally trusting in something despite contrary and obvious evidence. And, that, and, that's, and blind faith isn't good. Okay, we shouldn't do blind faith. But perhaps what we do need is faith like a blind man. Faith in Christ, a Christ that we can't physically see at the moment, but that we, a Christ we know, that we see with eyes of faith, and that we follow into eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Christ does not leave us to the side of the road, but that as we cry out to him, he has compassion on us. That even as his disciples who, have, who are needy, who often don't understand your purposes or your ways or wrestle to understand your scriptures, your commands, to, who wrestle with the flesh, who, who, who are discouraged oftentimes by circumstances or our failures, the state of the world uh, and, and uh, the state of our lives, uh, uh, the, the lack of godliness that we see in the world. Father, we, we are so needy, not just when we come to faith, but even as those of faith, as those who bear the name of Christ as Christians. And so, Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us, that we would have faith like the blind man. Faith and trust in the mercy of the Son of David, the Son of Man, the Savior who came, who suffered and died and was, and was raised from the dead and ascended to heaven and lives forever that we may live forever with him. Father, may we ever hold the suffering of Christ as a painful but glorious reality of your mercy. For in your mercy, you poured out your wrath upon your son that we would be forgiven of our sin and granted divine favor that we do not deserve to be pardoned of our crimes, but also to be declared righteous and given an inheritance that we do not deserve. So, Father, we pray that you would fill us with joy that as the blind man was healed, we may go out of here following Jesus, giving praise to God and that those around us would see our lives and would give you all the praise. We pray this all in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.